Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, guest host Carrie Holt speaks with Lizzie Hirschberger and Molly Maeve Egan to discuss their book, Behind Blue Curtains, a true crime memoir of an Amish woman's survival, escape, and pursuit of justice. Their conversation will explore Lizzie's struggle to survive the abuse, support herself, marry and raise her own family, and seek justice. Themes covered also include the role of religion and community in the survivor's life, its role in shaping gender norms and expectations, with particular emphasis on enabling, excusing, or permitting men's violence over women and the survivor's healing from trauma. Welcome, Lizzie and Molly. This is Kiri. So let's take a dive in, a trauma-informed dive in. The title is a perfect description. Uh, First, it's years of survival of and then escape as a teenager and then pursuit of justice with the sexual assault conviction. Um, So Lizzie, what is your story? My story um, started um, from as early as I can remember where I was being um, abused um, sexually, physically by my uncles. And I have no memory of not um, ever being um, sexually abused as a young child. And as I was growing up, uh, it got to about the age of nine, and I had two little cousins that died in a fire. And after that, the um, abuse from my uncles quit. Um, There was no, my uncle got married and moved away. And so he didn't live next door to uh, us anymore. So I did not have any more abuse. I didn't suffer any more abuse from him. But as I got older and I finished school, eighth grade, that was when our education ended, I became a mod, we called it, for a married couple. And this couple was friends with my parents. I knew them. I knew them before they got married. And they were newly married. They had four little children. And they wanted me to live with them and help them on the farm. And on the farm, they were doing milking cows for a non-Amish person, which was pretty common. And that is where, over a process of about a year, I was first groomed. And um, eventually I was raped by the husband who, you know, continued to do it. We don't know how many times, but according to my diary, it was at least 24 times because I had made distinct marks in my diary, which I didn't recall until later when I was going in to report my case. And I, I figured out what those distinct red marks were about. I want to clarify, because a lot of people don't know this, that When Lizzie came to me, she wanted to write a simple book about what it was like to grow up Amish. And it was through working together and asking questions and her finding these journals that the story turned into what it it is. Mm. But that was never the intention. This was a book about two survivors, like coming together and telling, telling her story. But that was not what she first intended to do. You know, so her finding the diaries, her going to report, all of that happened maybe a third of the way in. I had 40,000 words to work with about what it was like to grow up Amish and the words and what they wore and what they ate. 
And it wasn't until I really started digging, I was an investigative reporter in my past, that I realized there was a much bigger story. And I think Lizzie knew that also, but she just, it's hard to to tell that story. So this was really a very interesting process. A lot of this didn't come to light fully until we were already in the writing process. And she found her journals. Did you think about not publishing it and just having it for yourself? Many times. (laughs) I quit many times. Yes. Yes. It was just, I guess initially, like she said, started writing because I really wanted um, to leave my children with something. And ultimately also the book was started because I I was looking for my biological father. And I thought that if I would start writing and at least putting down the information that I have, if I never found my father, then my kids would at least have something and maybe wouldn't have to be investigated as much as, as I was doing. So I was trying to get that together for them. So yes, many times we, um, I said, I'd quit. I just don't want to finish. It was too painful. I didn't want to keep writing, but I am so glad that I didn't. Um, it has made a huge difference in my local uh, community and in the Amish community, as far as people understanding what I went through, because so often when I people have read the book and and, and they've asked me to come out, there's this even Amish people, and they'll say, you know, we knew bits and pieces of your story. We were uh, the couple that sat in the Amish church when when your um, rapist confessed, mm-hmm. but but we never heard your side of the story. We didn't know about this diary. We didn't know about um, like one person. I thought this was very unique that they said that they knew from what they had been told that it was an extramarital affair. That's what they, they they had been told. But then when they read the book and they were reading that he said, relax, they're like, well, yes. they knew that was forced there or it w- he wouldn't have had to say that. And I thought that was really, I mean, phenomenal. Some of the points that people have pointed out. And obviously there's some people that want to still disagree uh, with the book and say that it that's all fabricated, which is ridiculous because we have so many facts in there and there's so many pictures and you know the DNA results and just lots of different things so I'm so glad that I did it and it's brought so much closure closure for other people too not just for me but that they know the the rest of the story they they've just always heard his side and now they can they can hear my side right and the fact that people called it an extramarital affair between a 14 year old and adult shows you that well, there's no sex education in those communities, but um, it was really an opportunity to talk about the grooming process. You know, when Me Too came out, I think they were talking about a lot of the right issues, but I was ready for the grooming conversation because you don't need to be raped at the end of a grooming to be seriously damaged. Like that's part of my story. And people don't understand the grooming process. And I really, like Lizzie kept saying, Everybody just thinks, you know, I'm a slut and a whore and and they don't know the story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people didn't know my grooming story either. And it was a chance to educate people about how a grown man can easily manipulate a child, especially one who's had no affection in their life and no sense of love, even just being touched or asked, how are you? Mm-hmm. Feels intense and romantic. So I think that was important to say. I agree. I also think the setting the stage, the prior abuse, the unworthiness that you're not, you know, valued, you're not wanted, looking for love and the human trafficking example, when you did finally escape and how you were almost 
you're in this gas station. I was so angry at that part because here you're trying to, you know, be free. And this, they, it's like almost like these people are searching for this vulnerable, but you were able to, yeah. I'm sorry, but as a five foot two, small, very strong female, I think people are looking for targets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're not paranoid. If you're a woman and you look vulnerable, I'm constantly getting sized up by men to see if I'm vulnerable and they, they choose the most vulnerable one. It makes me angry too. That was an empowering part of the book, how you kind of rejected them. You were like, no, you, your voice really came out and you were, you were, you were done. You were like, no, this is not going to happen. I thought I was just impressed. But if you weren't, a, if you didn't feel like you were a survivor, you were, I mean, at that point, obviously. Thank you. It, and I, might, might I add just a little bit something there? I know that in the book, I briefly talked about my dad, um, where he approached me. And um, that was a um, subject that it was extremely difficult for me to put that in my book because I have siblings. But I'm so glad I did. And because it, at that point, too, I could tell him no. And before, you know, it was just like, I felt like I had no voice, but it's, you know, different parts, like you said in the book, it, my voice does come out and I do start using it. Um, but it was very difficult. And I've had, you know, some backlash on, on putting that in there. But it was just part of my story that I really felt like I needed to put it in there. And like I said, I, I forgave my dad. He I never told me that he was sorry that he did it or apologized or anything. But I do believe that he was, he regretted it. So to clarify, her father makes a very disappointing decision when Lizzie's a young adult. And we did consider not putting it in. But that's the reality, especially in these communities, is that girls and women are seen as indentured servants, they're farmhands, they're mothers, and they're sex, they're there for your sexual pleasure. And that can infiltrate even a I feel awkward saying this, but a good man's mind, if you're on a generational abuse level and it's all okay and there are never any consequences, you know, her father in the book, like he's a good guy, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And then he makes this horrible choice. So that, that was a difficult, that was a difficult part. I'm surprised to hear you say that you're glad it was in there. Um, The other part then too um, is, you know, you said for most part, my dad was a good guy in there, but he made the wrong decision and he did rape, a, you know, our hired girl um, when I was younger. Um, so he, he made bad choices. And I know that he had to confess in front of the church and whatever, he got six weeks of shunning, which is, yeah, like said, there's, that's not really any punishment. <laughs> really isn't. Right. Mm-hmm. They're taught that it's acceptable. Mm-hmm. They're never taught that that's wrong. And even now when Amish or Mennonite or any plain man is arrested, well, not any, but we, we've we heard men say things like, well, this is the way it's always been, or I didn't know that was wrong. They really believe that. That's a problem. I saw that you went to, there was a 13-year-old girl at a no, there was a no contact order. You went and showed up. Was that at a hearing? It was, there was a no contact order. They a 13-year-old Amish girl, two Amish men, age 18 and 22, they pled guilty to sexually assaulting her but did not receive prison time, and you supported her at a hearing where they violated a no-contact order? That's like the community I'm talking about. Like, I'm saying, like, where is the, I don't know, text string <laughs> for, you know? 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to talk about that, either one of you or the way they get away with it, that you're showing up and saying, this is not okay. You know, so I will say that because this is that kind of sentencing and situation in the courts is common because the plain communities actually have a lot of money, most of them, and they will contribute lots of money to the local law enforcement. And they're also just sort of ingrained. I'm sorry, it's a little like the mafia, in my opinion. So they've gotten away with this for years, very intentionally. And now what's happening is we are able to say to the DAs, this is unacceptable. And there are hundreds of surviving plain women out there who are going to do something about it. They're coming out with protest signs. Like these are women who never voted. And they're the ones now pressuring local DAs to put these guys behind bars by letter writing campaigns or calling or showing up to court with signs. I think it's working. We've seen a lot of movement. How do people get in touch with that? Like, how do we follow that? Like, are there just like look in your local community or the Voices of Hope? Well, Lizzie has Voices of Hope. Mm -hmm. Yep. So we do conferences for women. But uh, just um, if you'd follow, I have a Facebook page, you can follow on there, you can follow Molly, Molly has a different organization she works with. But there are multiple different organizations out there right now. I mean, and it is a much more use, I say, there's so many more people out there supporting uh, survivors, and being there for victims than ever before. I mean, 10 years ago, there was nothing hardly. And now there's so many. So if just reach out. Um, there's different groups, lots of different groups. And some are specific for, you know, going with somebody to court. And Molly can talk about that. Um, but I just personally, locally, that's where I try to concentrate my uh, volunteering. Or if I hear of a case locally, um, I try to go to support somebody in that matter. And then that way, I'm making a difference in my community. I can't be everywhere. And so I think if if we you know, try to empower women. And then we have conferences twice a, twice a year, at least. And they're trying to teach the women to do the same thing. This is what I'm doing to make a difference. Here are some tools, go out and make a difference, do something. And, st- and also going back and starting immediately in your own family saying, if you are a mother, you are going to do everything you can to protect your child and not have this generational thing um, keep it happening. Because that's what has been happening for years. And I see it even in people leave the Amish, they still are unable to grasp the fact that it's been happening for so many generations and they think that just won't happen to them. Yes, you have to educate yourself and and be there for your kids and teach them. It will just not automatically go away because it is is a horrible, sinful thing that's been happening. Mm -hmm. Um, it's like they're not looking at ch- girls as separate human beings um, with separate human, you know, a full, you know, like they're not, they, they don't have their own feelings, you know, they don't have their own. It's like, like you said, um, Maeve, it's like they're there to, you know, support and, you know, provide services in all ways. Mm-hmm. To be clear, this is all condoned by the Supreme Court through a decision called Wisconsin versus Yoder, which allows the plain communities to homeschool, but it's about religious freedom. And that decision has affected a lot of other quote unquote freedom of religion issues that affect things like not installing septic tanks, which just happened, or things that have nothing to do with God, honestly. 
I was yeah. wondering about that because how do you reach people if you don't know it's abuse? If you grow up with it as a girl, if you don't know if it's abuse, how do you get in there? How do you educate people? Education stops in eighth grade. So that's why I thought the criminal system was unique in that it was actually a pretty, because you're outside already, right? You're English, you are outside the community. So you're, you've less of a voice. So I thought that the pro, the criminal process as imperfect as it is seemed probably the best option. Did you, Lizzie or Maeve, do you have a thought about that? You have the language, Lizzie, to go in there with, you know, to, to speak and, but even so you're still not a member. What do you think, Lizzie? I think that is a huge problem. And and there's been lots of time spent on trying to figure out, you know, what can we do to get in there? And for me, what I figured out that I can do best is that I live that by the community. They see me out in public. And whenever I have an opportunity, I interact, especially with the children. And so that they just know that I'm a safe person. And I know from my books really circulating in the community that people are reaching out and they know that I've went through something like that. And they have just that, they have that knowledge that I have went through something. And often you're drawn to, to certain people. And I know is you're drawn to somebody that most likely has went through something similar, or you have similar interests and things like that. So I think to answer your question is that it is very difficult to get into these communities. And there's been a lot of time spent in trying to get into them. But the best that I know how is is what I'm doing is staying by the community, interacting with them, going to their farmers markets, going to their um, quilt shops, going to their uh, bulk food store, so that I at any time, you know, like I said, if I see any kids or if I go to, I have nieces and nephews that are Amish. I have lots of them. And if I can go there at least on a somewhat regular basis, that they know that when I come that I will, you know, talk to them and that they can, hopefully if something's going on, they would be able to reach out to me. But just as a general public, what can you do? It's just being more aware. Because in my case, when I was getting raped on that non-Amish farm, the the farm owner walked in on several occasions. He knew what was going on. He just didn't want to get involved. So you just be more vigilant. And if you see something, report it to somebody. Talk to social services. You don't always have to talk to the police, but talk to somebody and get somebody to do something rather than standing back and saying, well, they're the Amish people. They handle their own things. No, that's not acceptable anymore. As as an adult, if you see or suspect anything is happening with a child, it doesn't matter if it's Amish, Mennonite, English, doesn't matter. You do your duty as the adult and and do something. Don't just sit back and think, oh, it's going to all be taken care of or you don't want to get involved or anything. No, I, I don't believe any adult should do that because they did that to me. And I have can get really um, fired up about um, how those people handled that because they could have there could have been so many adults that could have made a big difference in my life if they would have just spoke up and did something. But they did nothing. What thoughts did you have in writing it this way? And Maeve, maybe you want to answer that question. Well, the first part of the book, we were really trying to establish Lizzie's lifestyle and her language and their whole way of life. And 
it was a lot for me to understand. And I felt it would be a lot for the reader to understand. And I didn't want the first part of the book to sort of be slower, you know, and then because I knew it was going to pick up. And I think that Lizzie and I decided to keep the momentum going by reminding them that there's this present and there's this empowered woman at the end of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people have a hard time understanding the victimiz- the victimization in the story. And it was also partly a way to just keep them rooted in the present and remind them that this, that this is a story about survival and not just about abuse. Right. So the style I felt was very grounded and very, it, it kind of, I was good. I was, I wanted, I wanted to build toward a trauma informed forensic interviewing style to really, I think you captured that even though we say when they're interviewing somebody from after a victimization, um, a trauma interview, like they may not know the, you know, what time did you arrive? What time did you leave? But you will have such important detail about the event. And that really can aid in kind of gathering a case. So I wanted to read a section from the book in the beginning, July, 2018. I've never been inside the police station before. I park in the adjacent lot so no one will see my car next to the jail and step inside. A woman at the front desk takes my name and the investigator for the sheriff's office, Captain John DeGeorge, comes through a security door to take me back to his office. He clears off the folding chair across from his desk and motions for me to sit. My back is facing the holding cell, and I'm unable to shake the sight of four men sitting inside staring at me. John's suit and tie, neatly trimmed hair, and a reserved smile balance out his boyish face. He sits and folds his hands in his lap, waiting for me to speak. I need to tell someone. I stop, unable to finish, and cut my hands over my face to hide the coming tears. John gets up and closes the door. The din of the jail fades. I take a breath, determined not to waste his time. I'm sorry, I say. So I'm on a hotline call with survivors and you know the unspeakable thing happens. Somebody um, hurts somebody that they love and it helps to re- reorient yourself to the present. And so in this description, you see the cell, the chair, his smile, the closing of the door. And, uh, and it, it just made me think, this is what you're doing. I feel like with the writing, is it, does that resonate with you or is this me just reading into it? Well, I'm also a survivor and I, I know how it feels. I know what it's like to have those eyes staring in the back of your, you know, head. And, and when somebody closed the door, I know what it's like to sit with a police officer. I was 12 years old and be asked questions that I can't answer. And that's, why it was easy to work with Lizzie. Um, Lizzie was so open to my experiencing her experience. Mm. And so it was really just natural the way we worked together to get those details. And I, I really, I do like that, that sense of being in the scene and feeling as you are her, like, what are the thoughts? They're not going to all be organized. There's going to be a barrage of questions. Sometimes you're not going to be focused on what's happening. So I think that's a testament to it being written by survivors. I mean, I know there are a lot of books written by survivors, but I think a lot of people overthink it and try to sort of make it academic. Almost. They're trying to explain things that are almost unexplainable. 
Yes. And so I tended to go more with Lizzie's stream of consciousness. I just thought it was more natural and I thought more survivors would relate to it. I also think it's a great book about like cultural competence in the Amish, you know what I mean? Understanding what, you know, Amish culture is and religion and the dress. Um, and I, so I think that detail and that clarity kind of helped. It's almost like an edu- that book could be used as like an education tool. But I feel that you're a skilled interviewer and I know that maybe, and maybe all survivors are. And I do believe that, I know we use the terms victim and survivor, but I do believe that, you know, it's, there's strategy in surviving these situations. So I think you're a survivor from day one. And I think even the book talks about that. You're trying to make sense of the events that are happening constantly. You're surviving even then. And that's clear in the writing, I think. So I just feel like there, it's, it can be a missed opportunity because if you haven't experienced um, trauma, you're going to be very linear in your, and I know there's a lot of trainings out there about forensic interviewing, but I think that this book really shows the value in the details, like this, you know, the diary and the, the things that you remember about the barn or the calves and about the different things that have happened in combination with. So let's just talk about the Amish. So Lizzie, you provide excellent details about being raised Amish. And it looks like the Schwarzentruber Amish is the most, is the old order. Am I saying that right? And you mentioned also the Ordnung. Can you just describe a little bit about what's especially closed about that culture and about the Ordnung, if I'm saying, you know? So the Schwarzentruber Amish from what I understand, they consider themselves like the original and that everybody else um, that has created their own communities or their own um, higher churches like Mennonites and, and plain people, that they chose to go to a more modern lifestyle. And my community that I came from just wants to stick with, you know, not being of the world at all and having the least modern conveniences. I mean, there is just you know, like I talked about, there's no indoor bathrooms, no electricity at all. There's no refrigerators. There is just the bare necessities to, to, to get by. And they lived off of the land, really, for many years. When, when I was growing up, it was just, you know, we had our gardens. We had our meat and chickens and eggs and, and things like that on the farm. And then as far as the Ortnung, that is the most complicated thing, I think, to talk about because they have rules for everything. And I'm, I'm talking about literally everything. I mean, it is what you can eat, you know, what day you do your laundry on, who is, who's in charge of naming the baby almost. I mean, there's rules for everything. So what that did um, for me growing up is I didn't have the opportunity then to make choices because everything, all the decisions were made for me. You didn't have to, you just did what they told you to do. You didn't, you know, get up and say, well, I'm not going to wear a blue dress today or a purple one. The dress was, you're wearing one dress all week. That's the color you have. It's just a lot of things that now as an adult, I really notice that I struggle with sometimes because I did not have the opportunity to make choices when I was young um, because mm-hmm. all the, everything, all the decisions were made for me. Every, you know, people told you what to do and that's what you did. You didn't question um, or if you questioned, you got in trouble, which I was a person that would question things. You know, why? Why do we have to wear only dark clothing? You know, why? Why can't we have something that's a little lighter color? So I questioned, and then I often got in trouble for that. 
um, because I questioned because I was not supposed to ask question like an innocent question and it was confusing because there was like the dress was followed but then there's all these other rule breaking so it's like this cognitive dissonance about like as long it looked you look how you looked a certain way and if you followed certain rules but then there's all this other stuff going on in the background like there's like this infidelity and then there's this drinking and there's this child abuse and then there's these all these other words for things like the mallard duck is the radio you know like it's it was just I, it's just so much effort. You know what I mean? To kind of just try to even like make sense. I found that very interesting. I wrote down here that braids, barefoot, silent, and you walk behind men. (laughs) So those, those, I mean, I mean, do you think that, oh, then you didn't use English doctors. You said you went to magic clinics. Um, your, I think your mother got you birth control when you were 14. It seemed you weren't sure because then maybe she suspected that there was the rape. I imagine um, education stopped in eighth grade. And so maybe you want to talk about, you know, how these rules shaped gender norms and expectations for you as a girl growing up Amish, Lizzie. Yes, it did. It really did. In the expectations as a, as a young girl, I feel like all that, all, everything they were doing was trying to prepare you to be you know, a mother and then have, get married and have kids. And you're such a second-class citizen um, as a woman, girl growing up, it, it, you know, everything has that the man always has the final, he's this decision maker, you know, if he's, he gets a decide and you just, it's just so difficult to feel any kind of value because of what, how they treat you. And I know that there's some some communities that have sort of giving women a little bit more rights, but with the, when I was growing up, we, we just didn't have any. I mean, it was just, um, and I think it, it, people can read in the book. My mom really struggled against that too because she really wanted freedom and and she didn't want to have to live. She really didn't want to live the Amish lifestyle herself. Yeah, there was one scene where you guys were going to church, I mean, our service, and your mother is doing all this stuff, getting all the kids ready and everything like that. And then it's like hours feeding, cooking. And then then you're like, wake up your dad. I was like, oh, this is like... <laughs> so I also think that there's such a beautiful community that's developing around this. When, I mean, you definitely talk about it when you're a child, you know, and there's a training I took by a woman named Dr. Zaluka Henderson. And she said, if you're talking about trauma, you should talk about healing Um, because there's healing practices in there. And like, you're looking at the stars with your sister, Royal. I like that. But of course there's abuse tied in. And so it's kind of hard to separate everything, which is really traumatic. But before your victim impact statement at the trial, you, your sister, you know, all these people came to support you. You're praying together as a group. You know, faith is still a big part of your your, it sounds like you're, you know, how you sustain yourself. Is there like an Amish community around um, this or formerly Amish that in addition to the Voices of Hope, you know, I know that you started that. Are there any like healing practices and things like this around this other than what I read about in the book? Are there like formal things or? Um, well, we're just in the process actually of starting a um, support group for survivors that is going to be in our local area. And that is something that I've wanted to do um, before, but we're working on that. But I think that just, you know, to be clear that I still live right by the Amish community that I grew up in. So I interact with them 
you know, I would say not daily, but weekly basis. And I, I think that like, sometimes I feel like my healing might be further along if I wasn't sometimes interacting with them. But then on the other hand, I, I really um, enjoy, um, I mean, there's some families that um, I really see that they're doing great things with their kids and they're not abusing them. But as far as uh, support, yeah, I think it's just, you just find people that you can connect with. And I think that, you know, I want to interject because I'm not, I'm not answering very well. I know that. But one of the biggest things I've seen is she became trained to be a victim's advocate and an interpreter for women in those situations who don't speak English. And I think, you know, when you're a victim, it's really healing to become an empowered survivor. And that takes work. You have to do the work on yourself before you go helping others. But I really watched Lizzie go through that whole process from victim to empowered survivor. And I think her helping the community in the way that she does um, and helping to empower other women. I mean, she stayed around that community, I think also because she can help them. Is that right, Lizzie? Yes. And that's a much better description. Yes. And how, mm-hmm. it's from helping others and from va- volunteering um, with victim services like I do. I feel that is so healing to me when I'm around other um, survivors. And yes, sometimes it's very difficult and you, you know, you might get triggered, but I can get myself out of it. And, and it takes a lot of self-care, but, but it really is empowering, like she said, to help others and, you know, other people that are going through the same thing I did and and I can just be there for them and help them. And, and it, in return, um, I feel like my healing, um, it helps me, it helps me probably tremendously. I'd like to conclude with the engendered questionnaire that Terry adapted from inside the actor studio. So there's three questions and just take your turns and I'll ask both of you. So Lizzie, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Wow. Don't worry, Lizzie. It's a challenge. (laughs) What's at stake? I mean, my life, the lives of girls and women and anyone who's vulnerable, I think personally, we've lived in a white male-dominated world for so long. And I... I know what it's like to feel absolutely 100% disempowered, not believed, you know, just second-class citizen. Even even though I grew up in Brooklyn, you know, with a feminist mother, a lot of these issues were still sort of the same. And I just really feel like it's time for violence against women and children to end. Like, I think women really need to step up. And you know, to go back to what you were saying about how do we get in there, the fact is that we're exchanging information all the time and there's so much social media and these kids are interested. And when someone like Lizzie or even me, someone like me walks into a farmer's market, they're curious. They want to talk to me. And, you know, it's an opportunity to really just sort of merge our worlds. Like now, when I say sexual assault survivor, I'm not just referring to women. I've expanded that Mm -hmm. to include men who I I never thought I'd be in a support group for sexual assault survivors with men. Doesn't always go well either. I would say that, but I understand now that it's an abuse of power 
And I think we're going to be fighting it for a long time, but I actually have hope because I see more and more survivors becoming empowered, learning to defend themselves, finding their voice. And I think at some day we're going to change the whole mental health narrative. If it's mm-hmm. survivors are going to have a voice. And so, you know, I feel, I feel optimistic, but I, I feel like we have to fight very, very hard, but I'm down. And I think Lizzie is too. <laughs> that's the next question. What gives you hope? So that's, I think you answered that question. Do you, do you want to say anything about that, Lizzie? What gives you hope? Yeah. What gives me hope is to see all these other survivors that are starting to come forward and stop being silenced. They're they're coming forward and sharing their stories and changing um, their, their family, whole family's direction. And they're talking to uh, other survivors and helping uh, victims. And I have much more hope in the movement now because there's just so many people jumping in and helping um, other victims. There's just so many, so many different groups, so many different people. And I say certain groups are for certain people. If if you contact one and they don't seem to be able to help you, look for different ones. Everybody has different clicks and different callings. And, and so find somebody that can help you and go with that. I will okay. say, and you said you that you're a domestic violence advocate. That Mm -hmm. back when I was 17 years old, my boyfriend beat the crap out of me on a public New York City train platform, crowded. Nobody did anything, nothing. They stood there and they watched. I know that if I was around today, like that would never happen. I am the first one to say something. I will never be that person. And I, I sincerely hope that that's not a scenario that would happen today. I hope that when when I was 12 years old and my best friend was raped, I walked into a police station and got asked, well, why were you there? What were you wearing? I really hope that's not happening. I know it's happening in some places, but I mean, people really are fighting back. Women are fighting back and we're uniting and it's very challenging. But I really see a survivor's movement making a huge difference. And as an empowered survivor, you can do so much. It's amazing. So what can each of us do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? Well, one of the things I think we can do is, for example, I sit on a board of directors uh, for an organization called Never Stand Alone. And there are some men on that board who still have one foot in the Mennonite community and who voted very differently from me and who have very different ideas about the world. The fact, I I, I mean, I could have run in the other direction months ago, trust me, but I stay because I don't think this has ever really happened before. A child of Brooklyn revolutionary sitting at a table with ex-Mennonite men and talking about LGBTQ issues and child abuse and to me, that's really, that's real progress. And I'm here for that as challenging as it can be. I think I'm at least changing my mind. I'm not staying in the same cliques and circles with everyone who agrees with me. There is a lot of value in a lot of these people, like the plain communities. They have an amazing community and work ethic. If you need something, the whole community shows up to help you. That's not the community I grew up in, even though it was a more socialist thinking community. 
So I think there's actually a lot of common ground, especially when the women get together and start talking. They have compassion. They're smart. And it gives me a lot of hope. So I think we need to do more of that. Yes, um, I agree. More of that and and stop sitting around and staying silent. You do not have to stay silent. doesn't matter who has told you in the past. If something happened, go out and start talking to somebody that will listen and make sure that it is somebody professional that can help. Because sometimes what happens is if victims come forward uh, and they only share it maybe with couple, you know, people in their community or something, they again will tell them, you have to stay quiet about that. That is a family secret. You can't talk about that. You you know, you're going to harm that family. You're going to bring shame to them. No, come forward. Start talking about it. That is the only way that you're going to receive healing is talking about it. And it is not going to go away by stuffing it down for years and years and years. It didn't go away for me. It came back up. I wished it would have just went away, but the best thing I could do is start talking about it, writing about it, and helping others. That is the way we could do much more of, um, and we would see positive future generations coming out of this movement. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It's a wonderful book, and it was very wonderful for me as well, personally. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.